Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Shawley. Don't forget, coming up on tomorrow's episode, we're going to be hearing from Allegra Stratton, the Prime Minister's COP26 spokesperson, answering your questions. You've just got time to get your questions in. You can email me, matt.chorley at times.radio. Whatever questions you've got about the COP26 talks themselves, about the global challenge of tackling climate change, but also what it might mean for you and your family, you can email me, matt.chorley at times.radio, and we'll put your question to Allegra Stratton tomorrow. Right, coming up on today's episode is happy birthday to Private Eye, 60 years old. There's a new book out chronicling six decades of both reporting the news and, I'll be honest, taking the mickey out of it. I'll speak to the author, Adam McQueen, about that. First, though, it's Monday, so it must be Libby Rachel. It's Libby Purvis and Rachel Sylvester. Now then, um, let's... Uh, let's talk about the budget. Obviously, the budget coming up on Wednesday. Uh, a phenomenal, something like thirty billion pounds has already been announced uh, from Rishi Sunak. Not all of it new, it has to be said. Uh, let's focus in particular on the NHS and even more money being an- announced uh, for uh, dealing with uh, NHS backlogs. Um, Libby, is there a, is there ever going to be enough? Is it ever enough money for the NHS? Do you think? Never, never will there be quite a magic bullet and there's a lot of reorganisation needed. But what I think was interesting, I did not hear him mention nurses and the nurse shortage is very serious. I've just had a friend whose brain surgery was cancelled and and post-dated sort of three or four times simply because there was a bed, there was an anaesthetist, there was a surgeon, but there weren't enough nurses waiting in case he needed an ITU bed. And uh, I, I think that's one interesting thing. I'd like to hear more about nurses. And also, I do think I'm getting a sense that the extreme advice to keep the hell away from doctors and hospitals during the first long lockdown is now seen as a mistake. There's quite a lot of the NHS is there for you because there are still people not taking important symptoms in, it seems, out of fear because we were told so strongly to keep away from doctors in the first lockdown. So I think that needs thinking about too. What, what do you think, uh, Rachel? Because I suppose part of the trouble is, is, is uh, Libby says, you can announce all this money, but unless it takes time to train doctors and nurses to do this stuff to bring down the, the, the waiting list. Yeah, definitely. And I think the politics of this are really fascinating because the Conservatives have decided they can't be on the other side of the public on the NHS. The NHS is incredibly popular. They have to be seen to be supporting the NHS, particularly now as, uh, you know, during the COVID crisis. But there is a huge problem with um, staff shortages, as Libby mentions, in nurses, but also in social care. And Boris Johnson talks about, you know, we've got to have a high wage economy. But actually, one of the lowest, some of the lowest wages are in social care. And that's the sort of government's responsibility to deal with that. And the other thing that I think is fascinating on the politics is that, you know, despite all this money for the NHS, at the same time, we've got this 
you know, growing um, COVID crisis coming up again on the tracks. And the government's giving these really confused mixed messages. It's refusing to go to what it calls its plan B. It won't even say we should all wear masks or MPs should wear masks in the House of Commons. And there is this kind of, it's all very well throwing money, but if then you, you don't deal with the, the actual immediate crisis, you, the NHS is just going to be overwhelmed uh, in the short term in any case. So there's a kind of confused uh, picture there, I think, politically. I suppose that the, 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 the politi- of all the political risks that Boris Johnson uh, faces approaching the 2023 or 2024 general election, Libby, having long waiting lists, 1990s style long waiting lists uh, in the NHS, is probably about as bad as it uh, could get for, for Boris Johnson. So, I mean, I can understand why they're throwing loads of money at it, but there's just a question. Ultimately, the question is whether or not he can deliver. And he's not necessarily, this is not necessarily an administration renowned uh, for turning promises into action. Organization and determination and just getting the right people to to consult with and to make the right decisions. I mean, we saw this in the brilliant vaccination, you know, uh, administration, you know, where, where um, Kate Bingham just really got going among experts and said, yes, this, we'll do this, we'll do this or this, we'll take a risk on this, we won't take a risk on this, we'll do that. And that is what this government is not good at. He has not surrounded himself with that kind of brilliant, organisationally minded people. I think probably the Chancellor is the nearest to it. And I think that is what we need, and we need a health secretary. I mean, I have some hopes of Javid because I think he's very, very bright. Uh, but, I mean, we suffered terribly under Jeremy Hunt, who obviously sort of went on and on, you know. Uh, he now goes on and on about how marvellous everything would have been if he'd been in charge and, you know, how everyone's doing everything wrong, without even mentioning the fact that when he was health secretary, um, intensive care beds were cut by many uh, and ran down the PPE stocks. You know, all these all these things have happened in the past, and we you know we need to look at proper forward planning, which I think may bring us on to the wonderful piece about Finland, which I'm very excited by. Yes, well, let's talk about Finland in that case. Then um, our colleague Edward Lucas uh, writing in the Times saying what we what we can learn from Finland. Uh, what can we learn from Finland apart from um, Father Christmas? <laughs> It's way more than Father Christmas. I mean, it's it's absolutely wonderful sort of list of things they've done, many of which are to do exactly with this business of planning, you know, planning and bringing all sorts of senior people and managers in the community, not just for military defence, but for disaster planning. Um, The the great thing, creating aviation fuel out of old food rubbish and the rest. Um, You know, it's it's just so impressive, this sense of a small country just really getting its nose down and trying to organise and to plan and to be aware that there will always be emergencies and that we should be ready for them. We have been shockingly bad at that the last few years. Why do you think that is, Rachel? You've spent a long time uh, seeing Westminster and politicians up close. Why are we bad at planning? Why are we worse at planning than Finland, of all places? <laughs> Well, I think what the interesting thing, I've just actually come back from Estonia next to Finland, which has, has copied a lot or learnt a lot from Finland. I was there looking at the education system for the Education Commission, and there are big similarities between um, their education systems. They start school later, not until seven. They have a big focus on early years, um, you know, the before children even get to school, making sure that they're ready for learning. But I think the thing that 
that um, the characteristic that they have and we don't is it's very pragmatic. It's unideological. They're willing to sort of mm. admit mistakes of the past. They're not caught up on their own, you know, banging their own dramas. We're the world beating. We're the best. We've got this great history. We've got this great empire, this imperial past. They just get on with, they look at the evidence and they decide what's going to work. So, for example, in the Finland case, they have, um, they've gone for nuclear power you know and the environmentalists are backing that so on whether it's on left or right it's not so ideological they're looking at the evidence and it's the same in Estonia with the school system they're looking at the evidence they've got a sort of cross-party strategy talking of planning until 2035 for education it's unimaginable that we'd have that here because there'd be somebody rowing about statues or you know the curriculum and which authors should be on the list of approved uh, novels for GCSEs and there's that sort of it's a pragmatic apolitical unideological approach which I think allows them to plan and this isn't just I mean this isn't just a sort of Boris Johnson government problem is it it's the whole of British politics Libby that if Boris, were Boris Johnson mm. to to stand up and, and and set out well we tried this thing that didn't quite work but we're gonna have a go at this thing the entire you know the mm. opposition would be all over it's oh you even you admit you've made a dogs breakfast of this to be all over yes. the front pages you turn you turn you turn you turn and that's why it doesn't happen that's why that sort that sort of honesty it, in politics just doesn't happen indeed and in another wonderful uh, bit of the piece about finland um, apparently the children at school from earliest years are taught media literacy they're taught to consider the fact that something might be a hoax that something might be a lie that something might not be supported by evidence and i think we could do with some of that too at every level i mean if you think of the the people i mean my brother who's a hospital, you know, he works in a hospital, um, is absolutely enraged by one of his colleagues at the moment who's a vaccine refuser and is going around saying, well, I've been on the web, you know, and I've been on the dark web as well, and I know best, you know, these vaccines are all poisonous. You know, early years, a sense of, of weighing up evidence and realising that somebody might be hoaxing you. I mean, that sounds like a wonderful bit of the education system in Finland. Mm. And it's very similar in Estonia. They have this approach of we're going to teach children to have curiosity, creativity. They're not seen as dirty words, challenge things that they're told, think it through. Uh, it's a much more kind of um, creative and inclusive and holistic approach to education rather than just learning lots and lots of facts to churn them out for an exam. But while we're putting, uh, fixing the British political system, uh, let's also fix the honest system. Uh, Claire Foges is writing in the Times today. Uh, I mean, she's, she's been the beneficiary of this. She used to be David Cameron's <laughs> speechwriter. She's got an OBE, uh, which is actually quite good because almost everyone had ever met her. I think I was the only person who'd ever met David Cameron who didn't get an MBE when he left, uh, <laughs> when he left, David, uh, when he left number 10. Um, uh, but the, the, the weirdest, latest development is because I think Tony Blair started this. Tony Blair... Uh, didn't take an honour, he's not taken a seat in the House of Lords. Therefore, Gordon Brown, uh, David Cameron and Theresa May haven't. So um, Philip May, Theresa May's husband, has got a knighthood instead, um, <laughs> which just seems very strange. Uh, Dennis Thatcher obviously got a knighthood too, but, it, but Margaret Thatcher would go into the House of Lords. What do you, what do you make of this, uh, Rachel? 
Well, Claire is very um, anti all of this, and she thinks there needs to be a big reform of the honours system. Um, I'm more worried about peerages, which Claire doesn't seem so worried about. I, I think, in a way, the honours system, yes, it's anachronistic, yes, it's old-fashioned, yes, why on earth should... Um, Philip May get a, an honour at one level and um, I remember Theresa May in fact she told her aides right at the beginning you'll be lucky if you get a Jaffa cake you know I'm not going to give any honours and then she <laughs> handed them out like sweeties at the end as well um, but but an honour it doesn't give you any power doesn't give you any influence whereas a peerage you get to vote on the laws of the country you get to decide um, you know what what how we're governed and I think that's far more pernicious when you have political donors actually having power in that way uh, or um, party, you know, apparatchiks. Uh, I think that's far worse than an honour which actually doesn't, is relevant at one level. You know, if somebody wants an honour, you know, fine, it doesn't really make any, there's no skin off the rest of our noses. <laughs> <laughs> it yeah, I suppose if it's essentially a pat on the head, it's, it's a gold star exactly. for the teacher. It's a gold star, yeah. but it doesn't actually give any power at all. Whereas a peerage, that really is pernicious. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, Libby, what do you think? Or Dame Libby, surely. Surely it's only a matter of time. <laughs> MBE. Certainly not. No, only in the panto sense. I, mean, I have to say, I love what Claire said, the fact that she got an OBE for just doing her job she was paid for, for David Cameron, whereas her mother got an MBE, which is technically a level lower, for years and years and years of being a foster mother. I mean, when you do go to one of these ceremonies, and, and I did, I went and got my OBE simply because the children wanted to go to the palace. You know, that's the, most people say that. But you sit there and you listen to the citations of people who've done astonishing, unsung, humble useful work for years and you think yeah that's what it's all about i like the honor system because i think all the faradiddle and you know medals and palace and so on actually is is a good reward for people who have done that kind of work like, like claire's mother but i think the business of getting it just because you do your job is um is absurd you know and, and i mean that my, my father got a cmg because that was the level in the foreign office he'd risen to as a diplomat but you know he always thought it was a bit of nonsense um so I think I think it needs it needs looking at. I do like the idea of replacing the word empire with excellence because I think the word empire is just getting so embarrassing now that uh, you know nobody can go around with a model a medal with an empire on it. So I, I think what Claire says on the whole is is fine, but also what Rachel says about peerages. I mean, good grief. Um, who is it? Uh, Dennis Thatcher got a baronetcy. I think isn't Mark Thatcher presumably gets that. Libby Poems and Rachel Sylvester today. Of course, you can read them in the Times every week. Just get yourself a digital subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, it's Happy Birthday, Private Eye. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. You're listening to the Red Box podcast now. It's time for this. is the sound of six decades in music. 
And this year, the beloved satirical political magazine, Private Eye, turns 60. It's an absolutely cracking book. The pri- uh, there's an absolutely cracking book out. Private Eye, the 60-year book. Six decades of jokes and journalism. Edited by Adam McQueen. And Adam joins me now. Hi, Adam. Hi, Matt. Nice to, nice to be here. It's nice I was, to have you. I, 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 I was thinking I ought to try and identify every piece of music there. You want to quiz me on them. <laughs> no, I'm not going to. Don't worry about that. Don't worry about that on the, on the music front. Um, so in a moment, we're going to rattle through every decade in about four minutes uh, in a second. We'll play some music for me. But more broadly, explain the book, because it's not just, it's not the history of Private Eye, but it's a sort of history as told by Private Eye. It is. So for the 50th anniversary, we did Private Eye's History of Private Eye. So we've done that one and we decided for the 60th, what we ought to do is the thing that we've never done. We always do an annual every year of kind of the best of the jokes from each year. And we thought, why not do that for the entire 60 years? This is basically Private Eye's history of the entire world and everything that's happened, all the big historical, political, cultural events of the last six decades, as, exactly as they were seen in the pages of Private Eye. So through all those um, features people remember, like Dear Bill, Mrs. Wilson's Diary, The Nursery Times, things like that, uh, the best of the cartoons as well just so absolutely everything crammed into 320 pages from the last six decades and there's a brilliant um sort of instruction at the very beginning of the book where it basically says just to explain what's going on uh, there are jokes and there are journalism the jokes have a white background the journalism has a sort of yellow background just so you can tell the difference yeah um, it, people do have difficulty telling the difference sometimes <laughs> there is a little bit of that um and just how did you reread every single uh edition of private eye or did you just go back to the annuals how'd you go about tackling no i literally went back we we have a set of banned copies of all where are we at now the one that is we're actually going to press today with issue number 1559 and i have read all 1558 copies i've poured over them we have bound editions in the office and when lockdown was announced back in whenever it was february 2020 i went home with all of the bound editions in the back of my back of uh, back of my car and spent most of lockdown poring over every single edition of private eye ever published my eyesight is now considerably worse i have much much stronger <laughs> glasses than I, yeah, than i had to have at the beginning of all this lovely stuff so that's the background to it well let's do this let's do it decade by decade we kick off with the 1960s So, Adam, uh, talk me through how uh, Private Eye came about. And the thing that really struck me looking at it is that it looks, the, the, the front, some of the front pages, I mean, the logo slightly changed, but the, the, the tone, the voice is almost exactly the same to how it is today. It gets there, gets there right from the beginning. And part of the reason for that is the, uh, the consistency in the staff of Private Eye. So the very first edition, uh, which did look rather different, but it was basically put together by um, Christopher Booker and by Willie Rushton. Uh, and they were helped out a bit by John Wells and Richard Ingrams. Now, all four of those people stayed with the eye and were associated with the eye right through their lives. Um, Richard Ingrams, uh, fortunately, is still with us. The other three sadly aren't anymore. But um, uh, uh, certainly Christopher Booker, who was the very first editor, despite being sacked in 1963, so not lasting very long as editor, came back and, and remained part of the joke writing team right up until his, t- till his death a couple of years ago. So there has been that sort of consistency of people and consistency of tone, like you say. It looks very different. The, the, the first edition, apart from anything else, it's printed on bright yellow paper for some reason, because <laughs> I think that Peter Osborne, the first business manager, managed to source a load of yellow paper from somewhere. And he 
was pushing at the time for it to be called the Yellow Press rather than Private Eye, which uh, which I, I'm not done whether that one will have lasted. I, I I don't know, but um, it, it, it's entirely illustrated by Willie Rushton. It's got no photos at all, and the famous photo bubble cover, which is the thing that most people think of uh, when they think of Private Eye, didn't come in until a bit later on in the next year at the suggestion of Peter Cook who had ripped off the idea from a magazine called Help, which he saw in New York when he was touring over there with Beyond the Fringe, um, which turned out to actually be the idea of um, Terry Gilliam, uh, the, the who was later in Monty Python. That was his idea that we ripped off from him. Terry Gilliam later on said that he, he, he came round to the eye office with various cartoons that he'd done, and, uh, and we didn't take a single one of them, so he, he really didn't do very well at it. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so in 1962, the, the, the story is that uh, Prince Charles was rushed to hospital from his prep school for an emergency appendectomy. And the first ever speech bubble, it was a sort of um, coach and horses, full, full world coach and horses, with a speech bubble saying, Great Ormond Street, James, and step on it. But yes. actually then by like <laughs> 1963, the, the front of Private Eye looks like it does now. The logo's the same, the speech bubbles are the same. Um, and it's had this it's all enormous... there, isn't it? Yeah. And why do you think it took, I mean, it obviously had a very checkered uh, history in terms of, you know, finances and staffing and, uh, and that sort of thing. But why do you think it took hold? Was it that it was part of that sort of satire boom that it managed to latch onto? Well, it certainly 60s. was part of that. I mean, that, that was an enormous thing. And you had the Profumo scandal in 1963. And, uh, and, and that was the week that was on television, which essentially just lifted the entire staff of Private Eye and installed them as, uh, as scriptwriters to David Frost. It was, it was sort of wholesale uh, lifting of the whole thing. Um, so that was enormous. And at that point, the, the, the readership of Private Eye rocketed up and everyone wanted to be sort of irreverent and satirical and, uh, and all this kind of thing. But that's a really, really small part of the history. That was basically all over by 1964. I actually found yesterday when I was going through various papers, this is um, a, 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 an appeal for funds uh, from 1964 because basically the whole thing crashed after the satire boom was kind of finished. And this was this 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 this, the, uh, it, 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 this is a thing written by the then business manager that say, uh, saying um, it became a spectacular success with circulation soaring to over eighty thousand at one point at the height of the Fumo affair. A lot of people thought it was a brilliant freak, a flash in the pan. And to no one's surprise, when the satire boom lost fashionability, when Harold Macmillan retired, when Christine Keeler went to jail and TW3 was extinguished, circulation during the autumn of 63 began to slip quickly down again. And this is basically a thing like, please invest some money. So luckily at that point, Peter Cook arrived back from America and did invest some money. Not only that, but he, he, he installed a lot of other kind of groovy 60s celebrities as shareholders in private eye, where they, where they remain to this day. So Jane Asher... Uh, has has shares in Private Eye. Dirk Bogard also bought a chunk of Private Eye, uh, which <laughs> which has gone down through his family. Jane Asher, amazingly, uh, met her uh, her husband Gerald Scarf at a Private Eye party, um, and, and and they remain together now. So that's she's done quite well out of that that, that investment, certainly. Um, but yeah, yeah, it, it just sort of went on. It built up. The, I mean, they're talking then about circulation of eighty thousand being incredible these days when print is supposedly dead. Uh, Fifty years on. 50-something years on, we're at a, a, an average of 239,000 copies uh, 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 every fortnight. So, um, yeah, we'll, we'll, it, it we'll wasn't, come to wasn't that just that, that satire boom. And how that happened. Let's move on then to the 1970s. I mean, I, I basically never miss an opportunity to play out and John on this show, uh, which enough. is a perfectly good one. So this is the 1970s <laughs> and, and, and Crocodile Rock. Um, so you're sort of ahead of the 1970s. By this point, it's it's reasonably established. Ten years in, it's got you know it clearly it's got its tone of voice and that sort of thing. But the thing that um, struck me is that the 
the, sort of the journalism starts pl playing a, a bigger and bigger part in it as well by the 70s. Yeah, that, that's the other essential ingredient of Private Eye. The cartoons are there right from the beginning. The satire and the spoofs are there right from the beginning. The journalism comes in a bit later. And it comes on, first of all, in the form of a guy called Claude Coburn, who by that point was a very, very old man. He, had, he was famous for a magazine he ran in the 1930s. Uh, called uh, The Week, which exposed the, the Clifton set and various kind of appeasers of Hitler and things like that. You know, this is this is how kind of old school he was. But shortly after he comes in, you get two other really, really key figures who come in. One is Paul Foote, who was the absolute kind of doyen of investigative journalists. And he's involved for the whole of his life right through to 2004 when he died. Uh, I mean, I, I was lucky enough to work with him. It was absolutely incredible. He, he, he really did set the tone for the kind of investigative stuff and the miscarriages of justice that Private Eyes burrowed into over the years and pursued for, for decades at the time. And the other essential ingredient at the back of the magazine is Michael Gillard, who uh, is Slicker, who runs our In the City pages, which are, uh, are, are this kind of really forensic, um, hard-hitting uh, investigation of, uh, of business and, and various con men through the ages um so you've kind of got that and it's this weird this weird formula yet no one would ever pitch this now no one would ever say we're going to do a magazine that's going to have some really hard-hitting investigative stuff uh which is going to cause lots of legal problems you're going to get lots of injunctions and writs and all sorts of stuff like that uh we're going to go some really hardcore sort of uh, miscarriages of justice which will be quite hard reading and and, and a lot of the, those campaigns are going to go on for years also we're going to have a load of really tasteless jokes in the middle that readers will get offended <laughs> over and constantly keep cancelling their subscriptions occasionally the cover will be so offensive and cause so much offense it'll actually be ripped off the off the shelves in news agents and people will refuse to sell it oh and a load of cartoons as well and maybe a bit of architecture and a farming column too i mean it's just sort of this mad something for everyone that's grown everyone. over time but uh, it, it works somehow you, you mentioned uh, legal actions and uh, mm. this is something that again is dog's private eye over the i suppose you, if you're, you're not doing your job properly if you don't occasionally get um, threatened with being sued but uh, Joy, james goldsmith in particular uh, tried to sue the uh, the eye out of business on behalf of harold wilson uh, the then Prime yes, Minister. Yeah. Well, it was partly on behalf of Harold Wilson. It was partly uh, out of his own complete madness. He, he, he was convinced that there was this communist plot in the media, which Private Eye was an absolutely central part of. He talked about it, a pus, a septic pus in the media that had to be extinguished. Uh, but also it emerged afterwards that he was doing a lot of this on behalf of his, his great mates, Harold Wilson and uh, Marcia, uh, Marcia Williams, Lady Falconer, as, uh, as Harold Wilson made her, who was his kind of all-powerful sidekick in number 10. And they had become so paranoid about stuff being leaked to Private Eye that they were absolutely determined to stamp the thing out of business. Uh, and and, and, and it, it's in the records of various Wilson aides, the, 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 the diaries of them rather, that James Goldsmith put up an awful lot of money you know he was a multi-millionaire at this point and a great gambler in order to just really crush private out of business it was something like a hundred writs and at one point he was suing not only private eye itself but uh, all of the uh, the printers the distributors even sort of individual news agents who were selling copies of the magazine to stop them selling it and it turned out actually because he had such an enormous business empire that i don't think he was entirely sure what it what 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 what, what it consisted of himself he was actually suing several news agent chains that he actually owned himself <laughs> that's how determined he was to crush us but it, it, it didn't work and it didn't work a decade later when another uh, bully businessman and and um, and this time a, a very very major crook robert maxwell tried to do the same thing which brings us on perfectly to the 1980s Yeah, we're still focusing on the on the on the legal side of things uh, here, Adam McQueen. Um, uh, so, Robert Maxwell, um, uh, no friend of Private Eye. Certainly not a friend of Private Eye. I think the problem with Robert Maxwell 
was that he lacked a sense of humour. And one of the real saving graces and things that's helped Private along the way is that you have to have a sense of humour. You have to show this sort of British sense of humour. There's some wonderful footage of Mrs Thatcher and Dennis Thatcher going to the uh, to Anyone for Dennis, which was the kind of West End play version of Dear Bill, the long-running feature we had of Dennis Thatcher writing letters to his, um, to his golfing partner. Um, and for some, it basically, they were taken along by their spin doctors because they wanted to show that Margaret Thatcher was a good sport, which, I mean, she was many, many things, but I, I don't think she was really, and she, and she certainly didn't have a sense of humour. And there's this footage, you can find it on YouTube, of her literally talking through gritted teeth and saying, marvellous, fast. And she obviously hated absolutely every <laughs> second of it. Um, Robert Maxwell is a bit the same. He was the first person ever to sue over a cartoon. He sued over jokes pieces, you know, all the things that you should just brush off and go, Ah, uh-huh, yes, very, very funny. It's uh, yeah, you're, you're just taking the Mickey. But he was absolutely just, had no sense of humour about it whatsoever, which doesn't doesn't make you popular with um with 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 readers. And in the end, Maxwell sued so many times and won so many cases because that was the way that libel laws worked in the uh, in, in in the 1980s. That even if what you were saying was true, and we were saying things like he's taking loads and loads of money out of the pension fund and ripping off all of his workers, which were entirely true. But you know, had he not dropped off his yacht. Uh, a bit before we could actually serve the writ on us, he would have almost certainly have won that libel case too. Um, he took so much money off us that we had to throw ourselves on on, on the mercy of readers and uh, and and launch uh, launch a fund for them. And and and, and at that point, the, read, the readers who are, are incredibly loyal and have been throughout that time were, were were quite willing to stump up because they they didn't want to see us being put out of business by a bully like um like like Captain Bob. It was also in the 1980s that Ian Hislop became editor. And I suppose that's the thing when you talk about. Um, the, the consistency of tone and look uh, is partly because it's had so few editors. Uh, Ian Hislop, yes. t- uh, yeah. 35 years this week as editor. I think that's him the longest serving editor anywhere on the, uh, anywhere in the country, probably, uh, for, certainly for a very, very long time. Yeah, um, it has. I mean, it, it is interesting as you go back through the back issues how much it has evolved because people have this idea that it hasn't changed at all. But if you actually go back to Private Eye of the 70s and early 80s, it's being dominated by some really unlikely people. So Nigel Dempster, who you know was writing this sort of society diary for um, uh, for the Daily Mail in his later years, was was kind of one of the major contributors in the 1970s. Peter Mackay also also wrote for the Daily Mail, and 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 Bron War Bron War wrote this absolutely brilliant fictionalized diary, which was all about him sort of going to have tea with the Queen and 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 and, and on all sorts of nonsense like that. It was, it was fantastic, but it was a very very different tone to the the, the kind of the, the the one that's been brought in later. It it, it has changed a lot over. We're talking 60 years of private eye, six decades of jokes in journalism. It's a new book by Adam McQueen. Now then, Adam, we've reached the 90s. Yes. Uh, We could pick uh, for the 90s. And um, uh, this was a point where the eye ended up with his lowest circulation because I suppose that after the the giddy heights of Margaret Thatcher, Dennis Thatcher, the unravelling of uh, John Major's government, that presumably was boom time. But then what happens with Tony Blair? And Tony Blair becomes Prime Minister and then shortly afterwards, Princess Diana dies, uh, which is also a slightly tricky time for the eye. Yeah, it was an odd time. So that's that's two events from 1997. The other one is that this is where I actually come into the story personally because I joined on work experience in September 1997. And it was a really, really odd time because... And this will be very, very hard for a lot of your listeners to believe now. But 
Tony Blair was incredibly popular. People actually took that song literally. They did think things could only get better. And there was this weird sort of disillusionment. A, a, a similar thing actually happened back in the 60s, uh, you know, after that satire boom, and when Harold Wilson came in. Uh, Richard Ingram's telling me about this. But suddenly people kind of went, oh, hang on. You're having a go at Labour. You're having a go at the uh, the, 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 the 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 ones who come in and, and, and knew it, exciting them. We like them, and people people didn't want didn't want to read it for a while. It didn't last for very long, I have to say. So Tony Blair, Tony Blair took not that long to get embroiled in all sorts of scandals. Like, do you remember the, the Bernie Eccleston tobacco donation at the end of '97? And then, of course, you go into uh, it, it, into uh, sort of the war on terror and him take and 45 minutes to doom and him taking a war in Iraq. And suddenly, suddenly he's the Tony Blair we all know and loathe now. Um, but um, yeah, it was it was a very, very odd time. And it wasn't helped uh, by um, a very odd national mood, uh, which, again, is one of those things that seems slightly inexplicable now uh, after the death of Princess Diana. When uh, we it was one of those occasions where uh, the cover, uh, which was it was it was an odd thing. It was meant to be it wasn't in any way disrespectful to Princess Diana. It was meant to be pointing out that uh, it, the, 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 the newspapers who uh, had been employing those paparazzos who had been uh, had been pursuing her in the tunnel at the time of her death. And indeed, the readers who'd been uh, buying all those tabloids in record numbers over the uh, o- o- over the summer to get those pictures might bear some sort of responsibility and culpability in what had happened. Which, actually, looking back on it, is quite an odd thing, isn't it, to attack your readers on your cover? Um, and maybe that was part of the reason it didn't go down well. But, but yeah, no, that, that, that issue was taken off shelves in, uh, in news agents across the country. And we got, I, I remember arriving on my work experience not long after that. And literally, in those days, we used to actually get uh, letters from people. And I, I, literally sacks of letters. It was like a cartoon itself. And the postman hauling them in of just people abusing us and, and saying how terrible we were. And actually, quite a few sacks of letters of people saying, actually, I think you've got it right. Everyone else seems to have gone a bit potty at the time. But um, th- that, that cover, which was being taken off the shelves as being too offensive, was there at the same time as uh, the very same day, in fact, it came out as the, uh, the, the sun front page that said, where is our queen? Where is her flag? To which the answer, if you remember, was at Balmoral with her grieving grandchildren. So it's, it's quite weird to put those side by side now and think, hang on, which of those was considered offensive at the time? I noticed that the, just looking in the book, that uh, Diana Funk cover is not in the book. Was that a deliberate choice? Uh, we decided it's been reproduced so many times in other places <laughs> that we decided to pull out some. Of, so there is a double page spread of the stuff from that Diana issue because everyone yes, yeah, remembers yeah, yeah. the cover. That was one of the things I wanted to do was 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 not to necessarily pick up all of those um, those covers that people remember and that have been reproduced elsewhere, but try and try and kind of dig into the issues and, uh, and, and, get, and get some other stuff in there. There is, I should say, for those of you, I mean, everyone should go out and stump up 30 pounds for this book because it is fantastic. There you are. I've got my plug in. Uh, but um, one of the other things you can do for free is go to the private website where we have an entire library of every single cover all 1558 of them uh which is you you, you will lose lose a day or more to, uh, to browsing <laughs> through that it is great fun um, i should point it, it is an absolutely cracking book it's also a monster book i mean some some books you know are fine for swatting a fly i think you could probably do a mouse in with with uh with this it's such a great big <laughs> A uh, solid piece of work. Uh, right, we'll move on then. Uh, we, we enter the new century, the new millennium. We enter the noughties. One, two, three, up. This is basically my, my whole Spotify playlist. Uh, right, so Adam, uh, we enter a new a new millennium, but uh, probably getting a reputation for particularly more of those, maybe it takes, maybe it took this long, more of those stories from the back of the uh, the magazine, the proper journalism. Sometimes it would take years before 
other more mainstream publications noticed. But things mm. like PFI, um, you know, tax deals for corporations, that sort of stuff, that really starts getting onto the front pages and the top of the news bulletins, the stuff that private I've been banging away at for a, for a long time. Yeah, yeah, it, it, it did. It took us 40 years, but suddenly we started being taken seriously and people actually noticing stuff. So the one that really struck me when I was putting this book together, uh, there's this... Uh, uh, a uh, public inquiry going on at the moment into the contaminated blood scandal, which involved uh, lots of haemophiliacs in the in the uh, in in the early and mid nineteen eighties being injected, uh, being 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 given uh, blood donations that were were uh, contaminated with HIV and um, and hepatitis. Uh, it's taken that long. It's taken all, all those decades to get to a public inquiry. The very first piece that Private Eye wrote about it, it was Paul Foot that wrote it, was in nineteen eighty seven. So they, this is how long things take. And things like the Lockerbie scandal, I mean, Paul, Paul was on to that and whether whether the right people were being pursued or whether sort of real politics had got in the way uh, and the investigation was going off in the direction of Libya when it should have been elsewhere. So within within a couple of weeks of, 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 of that flight being blown up back in the late 80s. So, yeah, it does take an awfully long time. And one of, one of the nicest things I found in the book was... Um, uh, a quote from Margaret Hodge MP when she was chair of the Public Accounts Committee, uh, basically saying, why am I getting all of my evidence, which I'm putting to, uh, to, to people from HMRC, from the back pages of Private Eye? Why, 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 yeah. why is this where it's coming from? And it's, it's because we've got some excellent journalists who do some excellent stuff, basically. So, uh, yeah, we start setting an agenda, which is nice. But also, crucially, getting it from the back pages, because almost nothing goes online. You defy... Well, everyone else was rushing, you know, some people, some people point out, actually the Times is quite sensible, they put up a paywall, uh, which lots of other people are uh, sort of following the, the lead on now. But Private Eye didn't even do that. If you wanted to read in full what was in the magazine, you had to buy the magazine. Well, we've always had this attitude, I think, oh, I say we, the, the, the editor certainly has, if, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. So, I mean, I mean, technologically, we have always been decades, if not centuries behind. I mean, when I joined in 1997, the, the magazine was literally being put together with uh, Ian Hislop moving little bits of paper around on a table until he had them in a, in a position he was he was happy with, uh, at which point they were kind of carried across the studio. And if they, anyone sort of opened a door or a window, they'd just blow away like confetti and we'd have to start the whole page again. And eventually the whole thing was stuck down uh, with cow gum. The only reason they, they stopped doing this as the means of production was was because cow gum was discovered to be highly carcinogenic and we were, we, we were banned from using it at that point. But, I mean, we, we were kind of one step on from the whole thing being copied out by monks doing lovely illuminated capital letters on, on the top of the pages. Um, weirdly, I mean, now, now we've gone extremely high tech because, obviously, with coronavirus, none of us could work from the office. And so, so, suddenly we've entered the, uh, the, the, the 21st century, which is quite extraordinary. But, no, I mean, online, there, there was a cartoon which the Iran... I can't remember whether it's in the book or not, but in, in the late 90s, uh, which is a, a meeting in a newspaper office. And um, the online team are saying, congratulations, guys, we're now our own biggest competitor. And that, that effectively is what people know. <laughs> why, why buy a newspaper if you're going to start giving away everything online? That was the question that, uh, that no one else seemed to be asking at the time. So, no, no, we don't. I mean, we, 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 we've gone reasonably high tech. We have, we have our own podcast now, Page 94, hosted by Andrew Hunter-Murray, which, uh, which comes out every so often. And we've done things where the technology works. So uh, Richard Brooks, who is our, our kind of big tax and finance investigative journalist, uh, put together this amazing map a few years ago, an interactive map, so you can actually see which areas of Britain are held offshore uh, through which i discovered that um on the other side of the the, the fence on the other side of my garden uh, is actually the british virgin islands um which is, is amazing so that, just, i remember well discovering something similar our, our, lo our local shopping center is yeah somewhere somewhere yeah much <laughs> no, but finally, finally then we hurl into the last decade then this is i don't even know what we call these the 2010s because i'm happy Come along if you feel 
And actually, this last decade, Adam, uh, wasn't particularly happy at all uh, politically. Uh, well, we had the coalition. Then we had the Scottish referendum, the Brexit referendum, a, a general election every sort of five minutes. Uh, never mind, you know, Donald <laughs> Trump and all of that. I mean, almost too much stuff for private eye, but actually it's just led to a sort of boom in circulation. I do remember the issue directly after the referendum, where literally, I mean, we usually have a couple of editorial meetings a week and talk about what we're going to cover. And at that point, we were having to have several every day because it, it felt like every time you said, right, we're doing this. And then you come out of the meeting and you go, oh, hang on, Boris has pulled out of the leadership. Oh, hang on, Farage has resigned as, 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 as leader of UKIP. Um, oh, oh, I, I, and I always remember, we got, it, it just seemed like every day someone was pulling out, someone was resigning, someone was going. I mean, it started off with Prime Minister resigning at the beginning of the week. That was, that was sort of old news by the time we came out of it later. And I always remember that right up until the last minute, it was sort of five o'clock on a Monday when we were going to press. We thought, right, finally, we've got to knock this on the head. It's all over. At that point, Chris Evans resigned as uh, as presenter of Top Gear, and it was like, "Oh come on, just, just, just <laughs> new, news, just stop for a second. Um, no, it has it has been quite mad, but that that does. I mean, so the sad thing is, the, the the bad times of the country do tend to mean uh, good good times for private eye. You do you can literally plot the circulation, and it, and it shoots up at at times of war or chaos or Donald Trump. So um, uh, I think it's the, it's the time where, 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 where people need, people desperately need a laugh, don't they? And, and, and also to, to feel informed about what's going on, which hopefully is the, is, is the two unique things that Private Eye can provide. So having read every single uh, um, edition of Private Eye right back from 1961, is there a favourite bit, joke, feature, that you've that you've sort of really enjoyed revisiting in all that you know time? the one that i was really pleased to go back and revisit and feature in this book because it never i mean a lot of things like dear bill and mrs wilson's diary and the vicarious and albions which was our tony blair spoof we we did a private i produced books of and they were kind of really really celebrated the one that was really nice to go back to is Heathcote, which is which was our, our prime ministerial parody of, of of ted heath who's running this 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 sort of widget company uh, uh which is is just falling apart um and, and you know strikes everywhere people uh, workers demanding uh pay, new pay rises the lights keep going out nothing works properly it's, it's just 70s britain in a nutshell it's perfectly encapsulated and he's constantly having problems with the automatic beaker dispensing unit in the works canteen because pieces are you know some of the bits are imperial some of the bits are metric and the, and, and, and and it just keeps exploding and and, and, and nothing working properly and is that it's just it just captures that era of kind of British Leyland and endless strikes and the three days, three day week perfectly. So um, that was that was a real pleasure to go back and uh, and revisit. And to be honest, the dear Bill letters as well. They are just a work of genius. Now, Richard Ingrams and John Wells wrote those and, and, and they, they are just always a pleasure to come. I and even if you don't follow absolutely every in and out of the politics of whatever fortnight it was, just the characters within it. I mean, the, Boris, the KGB spy who's secretly working in Downing Street. It, 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 it's fantastic stuff. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. We bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcasts from. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 